Good evening and welcome to the Director's Fall webcast for 2007. My name is Ken Haycock. I'm the Director of the School of Library and Information Science and I very much appreciate your being with us this evening. I have in the um, studio with me tonight um, two of our um, technical staff and two faculty colleagues uh, and we're hoping that you will call in with the questions or write in your, with your questions if I haven't uh, responded to them appropriately uh, during my talk this evening. I am going to talk for uh, 45 minutes or so, giving you an overview of the school, where we've been, where we're going, uh, where we are uh, right now uh, since my spring uh, webcast. And I've received about a dozen questions that I will weave into the presentation. And when I get to the questions, I will give the first name of the person who submitted the question so you can understand that it is your question, but not the last name. So there is some um, uh, slight anonymity there um, anyway. I'm going to look at the state of the school. I will repeat some things I said in the spring, but I know that not all of you participated in that or listened to the archived uh, uh, version. I'm going to talk about the program and curriculum development in the school, the school's environment and uh, resources, faculty development, external relations, student admissions and advising, and school leadership. And as I say, I will integrate the questions that we received so far, and I'll provide an opportunity at the end for you to ask additional questions. And we'll wrap up the session sometime after an hour, an hour and a half, between 8 and 8.30 this evening. As you know, we have a shared governance uh, program in the school. We have four overarching uh, committees, and on those committees are representatives of students, full and part-time faculty, alumni, and um, staff. And those students uh, deal with broadly based questions and issues. They bring recommendations to the uh, faculty meetings, which are held four times a year for two days each. We also have an international advisory council that advise the faculty as we go through. Uh, we put out our first um, annual report. Um, in fact, it's a biannual report for 2005 to 2007. And we will be putting out an annual report um, hereafter. And this report is on our website and we hope that you'll have looked at it and if you haven't that you might take a look at it and see the developments in the school over the past uh, two years. The big event, of course, between spring and now was the reaccreditation of the master's program in library and information science. Uh, the Committee on Accreditation sent an external review panel for four days in March. Uh, they looked at a wide variety of areas in the school from admissions to administration, finance, curriculum, and determined whether we met the quality of the standards laid down by the COA, the Committee on Accreditation. The external review panel called a random sample of students, of faculty, alumni, and presented a preliminary report to the senior administration in the university um, and to me. They made the recommendation to the Committee on Accreditation and I was asked to meet with them in Washington, D.C. in June. And as I hope all of you know now, we received the longest possible term of accreditation, seven years, and so the program is fully accredited for another seven years to 2014. I think it's important to note that there are a number of features that the report to refer to, um, such as the transformation of the school, the fact that we're in a new physical uh, facility in Clark Hall on the campus at San Jose State University, uh, that we have a new academic home in the College of Applied Sciences and Arts, a new director obviously in the last two years. They pointed to a highly sophisticated a graduate professional program that integrated both regular session students, tuition fees with state aid, 
and special session students who pay fees and come without state aid. They thought that even with the difference between regular session tuition and special session fees, it was a highly affordable program when compared to others across the continent. They also referenced the increasing standards and commitment to quality by the faculty, students, alumni, and the director, and granted, as I said, a full seven years reaccreditation to the school. That report, the report of the external review panel, is also on our website, and I hope you've had an opportunity to look at it as well. The last piece in our reviews and reaccreditation is the program presentation and review by the university itself. That was submitted today and we were waiting for the report from the Committee on Accreditation before we submitted that and how we were going to address any recommendations that came out of the report. The American Library Association Committee on Accreditation made only one substantial recommendation to us, uh, but it didn't impede our reaccreditation in any way, and that's that um, IIS Director will be reporting on a regular basis on the scholarship and research productivity of our faculty and students and how we're giving attention to enhancing that over the next five to seven years. The school has now been fully accredited, in fact it's the program that is accredited, the MLIS program, not the school, the program, the MLIS program, has been fully accredited now for 40 years. Um, in celebration of that event, a couple of weeks ago, we had a 40 for 40 celebration, recognizing 40 outstanding alumni uh, in honor of our 40 years of uh, continual accreditation. The school has never recognized its alumni in any substantial way before that. Uh, we've out recognized three outstanding individuals in the last three years as a part of our participation in our new college, but never recognized our alumni. And as I say to my colleagues uh, here on campus, what do a New York Times best-selling author, the Dean of a College of Education, the outstanding school librarian for the United Kingdom, exceptional public library directors in this state, and leaders in Silicon Valley have in common? Well, they're all graduates of the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. Those 40 individuals are recognized on our website, and again, I hope that you've happen, had an opportunity to see those pictures of that uh, wonderful evening and celebration that culminated in the Lazaro Lecture uh, by Jane Dysart, who organizes the Internet Librarian Conference in Monterey um, each year. Let me just remind you of our shared values, because these really do guide our decision-making. The first is around scholarship and learning, and we, of course, value education above all and the research, scholarship, and pursuit of knowledge that we encourage in the school, as well as the independence and personal responsibility that we expect for tomorrow's leaders um, in our uh, student body. We value our student and faculty and staff and are committed to their success. We place a high priority on ensuring academic success, and I'll have some comments on that shortly. We're also committed to excellence, those high standards, support, continual improvement and innovation in everything that we do. We stand for integrity and indeed we are accountable for our actions and we expect honesty and fairness in all of our work and in our interactions. We value diversity and we respect diversity, inclusion, civility and individual uniqueness and recognize the strength these factors bring to our community and learning environment. Of all our, our interactions, we believe, reflect trust, reflect caring, and reflect mutual respect. And lastly, our sense of community. 
We value collaborative relationships within and beyond the campus in order to best serve our mission. Our vision as a school is that by 2010, the School of Library and Information Science will be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science, delivering innovative, high-quality programs across the state, the continent, and beyond. I hope you know that for the first time last year, we were nationally ranked by U.S. News & World Report as one of the best programs in the country. We were named by them as the number one e-learning service provider in the United States. The California Library Association gave us an Excellence in Public Relations Award. And we were invited to join WISE, um, the web-based information science education consortium, the highest quality web-based uh, consortium on the continent uh, in our field. And although I can't release the name of the individual, I learned late this afternoon that one of our faculty will be named one of the seven outstanding web-based instructors in the country um, in January. We also are receiving applications from more students than ever before. Even though our fees were raised two years ago and our admission standards are higher than they have ever been. We've had to turn away hundreds of students and we're looking for ways to accommodate them in the new year. Our mission, in support of the university's mission, is to educate professionals and develop leaders who organize, manage, and enable the effective use of information and ideas in order to contribute to the well-being of our communities. Our strategic plan has four strategic directions. These were approved after wide consultation. And they are first to enhance our curriculum and program quality, to design new programs and specializations for delivery across disciplinary and geographic boundaries, to develop standards and support for faculty development and renewal, and to focus on the management of school operations uh, on strategic planning, effective communication, equitable support for all members of the school community, stewardship of our finances, quality customer service, and accountability. Let me look then at the first area that I know is of great interest to you, and that's program and curriculum development. In response to comments and questions that you made last year, we named coordinators for our required courses and for our clusters of courses to introduce more consistency. For this year, we've given faculty some time to give attention to that consistency in response again to your questions and concerns. As you know, for students who came into our program at the beginning of this year, research methods is required, Library Science 285, um, but we offer different sections of that, from evaluation of youth services, to historical methods, to survey research, to evaluation generally. We believe that research methods is critical in any graduate education program. As part of the introductory course, Library 200, all of our students over the course of 18 months will become members of the American Library Association and members of the California Library Association through a special arrangement we worked out with those two associations. For students who live in other states uh, with a collaborative arrangement with ALA, they will be enrolled in their state association. Where a student already belongs, their membership will be extended. You'll be interested to know that beginning next fall, our program will be extended from 42 units to 43. 
In the United States and Canada, the longer programs tend to be 48 credits. The shorter programs are 36 credits. San Jose is right in the middle at 42 and going to 43 credits. Why such an odd number like 43? We received such positive feedback to our student technology workshop that we felt that we should upgrade it and make it more substantial and more in-depth with greater accountability. It will become a one-credit course required upon entry uh, into the program. It will enable students in a credit, non-credit atmosphere with peer tutors to master all the tools and technologies that are necessary to understand the world of libraries and information services and to be successful using the technology tools uh, that we employ in our own program. So that technology workshop uh, that people took over two weeks in the past would become a one-credit course uh, organized and delivered by faculty with peer tutors, uh, focusing again on student success but in a more substantive way. Library 289, the move last year from research papers to the electronic portfolio. There was certainly a lot of concern expressed at the time, um, but I would say that by and large it was a successful transition and students seemed to be quite pleased with the move. You suggested that we match the competencies for our program to specific uh, courses, and we have done that. Uh, there, a question came around 289, if I could read it to you, from Jessica. Can you tell us what changes or standardization has been enacted in the ePortfolio? I think there were concerns previously about the instructions from different advisors being inconsistent in terms of evidence required and length and depth of the introductions and conclusions for each piece. Thank you very much for allowing us to have this forum. I'm very happy to see most of the student input is taken very seriously by the administration and turned into action. I would simply say, Jessica, that all of the student input is taken very seriously, and I agree, most of it is put into action, but not all if we can't or if we have a disagreement around it. In response to your question, the LIBR, LIBR 289 handbook with its frequently asked questions sections and examples is the guide for all e-portfolios. Full-time faculty serve as e-portfolio advisors. Again, I would just like to stress, in order to build in some consistency, the only advisors for the electronic portfolio are the full-time faculty. No part-time fa faculty advise students um, in the electronic portfolio. The faculty meet as a group to discuss the course and what the competencies mean. And in fact, uh, every three months, uh, as part of our agenda in our faculty retreats, uh, reaching greater consistency in the electronic portfolio is always on our agenda. Working within the guidelines set out in the handbook, each advisor has his or her own standards for satisfactory submissions and communicates those standards to their group of students. This means, of course, that you will not see standardization in terms of numbers of pieces of evidence required or length of writing. And in fact, this is no different than different instructors for different sections of one course having different assignments and readings, yet all achieving the same learning outcomes. The goal is for each student in LIBR 289 to produce a neat portfolio that demonstrates their competence to the satisfaction of their advisor. We recommend that students do not pay attention to what other 289 advisors are requiring of their students, but instead focus on what your advisor requires and produce work to that standard. Uh, in fact, 
um, in response to some of the questions and concerns that have come to, um, from students, beginning next fall, fall 2008, uh, we will be assigning students to an advisor at random to make it more fair, to make it more consistent, and to a maximum of 15 students uh, to each advisor. So each advisor will never have more than 15 students at a time uh, for the ePortfolio, and you'll be assigned to them at the beginning of a term, just as would happen in a, um, a course being offered. Another question from Jessica. In the last ePortfolio orientation, the presenter in Fullerton said that 10% of those enrolled do not complete the project. This seems like an awfully high number. I have no idea what the normal failure rate is for a graduate program, but is this out of proportion with other programs? I realize that this may mean that they took an incomplete and were able to finish the following semester, but still kind of scary. Well, first of all, it's not a failure rate. In fact, to date, to date, no one, no one has been disqualified from the master's program because of failure to complete 289. The 10% number represents incompletes and no credit grades. No credit grades are for students who enroll and then did not do enough work to qualify for an incomplete. The 10% non-completion rate on the first round is par with what it was when the culminating experience was two papers. In our experience, not counting those students who requested incompletes or no credit grades because of emergency family or health issues, those students who failed to complete the ePortfolio in their first semester did so because they did not start early enough to take advantage of their advisor's feedback. Or through carelessness at the last minute, like not checking to make sure that all competencies were submitted by the deadline, and so on. In other words, an incomplete is um, what was being referred to, uh, not the failure, and for the reasons that were just given. And again, beginning in the fall, we'll be looking at ensuring that there are limited numbers assigned randomly to each full-time faculty member. We've also introduced more one and two credit courses. Uh, we've clarified specializations and advice around specializations on the uh, website. Uh, we have more and more program advisory committees of employers for different groups of uh, courses, whether, web, or whether youth services, uh, technology, uh, archives and records administration, management, teacher librarianship, and so on. The internships have been incredibly expanded and codified, if you will, and we're now testing a database that will allow you to search for um, internship opportunities in certain locations by type of environment, by whether paid or unpaid, and we now have more internship opportunities than we have students taking advantage of them, a position that gives you a more choice than you would normally have. We put in a proposal for a certificate of advanced study. Uh, we believe that the university will allow us to offer this ourselves. We don't wish to do that. We'd like to make sure that it's offered by the university and that these are uh, certificates that are post-masters where an individual student can design his or her own program and take courses up to 18 credits in areas where they want to upgrade or undertake a further study. The cohort program of delivery 
Up until now, it's only in the executive MLS program, and it's being expanded now so that we have a San Francisco cohort of teachers who are studying with us to become uh, teacher librarians or library media teachers. The cohort group, of course, is a group of 20 to 25 people who stay together through the entire program and have no electives but choose to undertake it because it, bec it combines residency and distance learning and is geared to a specific uh, market on completion. Another question around the program is from Rona. Is there still an archives and manuscript concentrated program in the pipeline? If so, can you provide more information? Thank you. Um, there is very much an archives um, and records management or manuscripts uh, concentration or specialization within the master's degree in library and information science, and that will always be there and available to students. There's no particular designation at the end of it. Some students specialize in that area. Some students take one or two courses out of interest, but it will always be a specialization for those who are interested within the accredited MLIS degree. What you may be referring to here is the new degree that's being proposed, a master's degree in archives and records administration. This will be a freestanding degree, a separate master's degree. It's in the final phases of approval. It's been through our faculty. It's been through our college. It's been through the university's new programs committee. It's been through the senior administration and it's now before the regional accrediting body and we'll have our final uh, deliberations with them at the beginning of January and hope that to have that program in place for fall 2008. What I would want to clarify, however, is that it's not a program in archives and manuscripts. It's a program in archives and records administration with a very strong emphasis on electronic records where we think there are incredible job opportunities and a strong contribution to be made by our graduates. Now, in that particular program, we will not be seeking accreditation from the American Library Association, but we do expect that at the end of it, uh, students will be well prepared to sit for the certified records managers examinations and to become certified by the Society of American Archivists. If you go to our website, there is a section there on MARA, M-A-R-A, the Masters of Archives and Records Administration. You can find it quite easily, and it's well laid out what the required courses will be. Again, it will be a cohort uh, taking in 20 to 25 students for fall 2008, required courses all the way through, but there will be no residency requirements, and we see it as a program that will appeal to people um, across the continent. Another question regarding the program. There has been talk, this is from Sylvia, there has been talk of designing a new program de or degree in youth literature. What is the status of this degree? Would it include online classes for those who live out of the area? Please let us know any details that have been finalized. Well, we had great plans to start an MA in youth literature. Um, we thought that we could uh, develop something in collaboration with the English department and other uh, units on campus. And I must tell you that our experience with MARA, the Master's Degree in Archives and Records Administration, uh, was so daunting that we came to the conclusion as a faculty that we would like to see one through to conclusion before we even considered a second. However, um, we have taken a number of new courses forward in the youth literature and youth services areas, and these have now been approved by our faculty, they've been approved by our college, and are wending their way through the university's um, 
administration for a final approval. That will broadly expand the courses offered in this area and will put us in a good position to develop a degree program should we wish to go down that road. Um, I want to be realistic about this, however, because the uh, MARA program um, started with a market research study that we undertook. And the university told us that it was one of the best they had ever seen. They approved that um, degree for fast tracking and here we are two years later hoping to see it implemented. So um, the MA in Youth Literature will likely not be approved for fast tracking, so it's uh, debatable when it would ever be approved and implemented. I can tell you, however, though once MARA is in place, it's secure, it's uh, well supported, we will be looking at other opportunities as well because, um, as I mentioned at the outset, our vision is to offer uh, programs that span disciplinary and geographic uh, boundaries. A few other questions in the program and curriculum area. This one is from Rona. Well, I realize there can be a lot of disconnect between students from the online form most of us use. I have concerns about the disconnect some professors display also. In two of my core classes, I've had to wait the longest I've ever had to wait for grades. In one case, I'm still missing a grade from October the 8th assignment and another after that even after repeated submissions of these papers and acknowledgement of receipt. Other things such as midterm grades being returned around the same time as finals are due. This seems to reward procrastinators and makes it very hard to see how I'm, I am doing and adjust if need be. Plus, I am left feeling that this is a part-time job for some and not as important as the students they have in front of them physically. Let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, I can assure you that uh, from my investigations, there's absolutely no distinction between um, students who are taught face-to-face -face and students who are taught online. Online, I think that um, we can just bury that one. I spent a lot of time looking into that. There's absolutely no evidence to support that. Um, there may be evidence to suggest that a faculty member, an individual faculty member who's teaching for us online, uh, may be slow in getting uh, marks back to you, but I can assure you if they're slow in the online environment, that particular person will also be slow face-to-face. -face. So it's not the method of delivery that's the issue. It's uh, appropriate and timely feedback to you so you can continue to improve um, in the program. We have a commitment from the faculty that if they receive an email message from you, they will respond within two working days. If that isn't happening, uh, you should let me know. We have a commitment that in uh, Library 289, the ePortfolio, they will respond within five days. Um, if that isn't happening, you should let me know. Beyond that, it's very hard to make any specific commitment to you. Um, Receiving 25 uh, papers is obviously going to take a lot longer than responding to uh, 12 um, postings on a discussion board. Um, so it's hard to know how to respond appropriately and with what else is going on in that particular instructor's life. I'm not making excuses, but I can tell you, if you have truly waited um, for feedback to an assignment that you submitted October the 8th, and you've received nothing two months later, send me an email tomorrow and I will follow up on it without divulging your um, particular identity. That is far too long and it shouldn't be happening. Another question around media-rich environments. This is from Yassi. I know I'm not the only student in this program who feels there is something missing in the delivery of the program's online courses. 
I also feel a sense of isolation in the current online format and the fact that I do not currently work in a library. I think a more media-rich interactive environment would help students with different learning styles. I must admit the Illuminate sessions help, but there are usually only about two sessions during the length of the entire semester course. What efforts are being made to enhance the online learning environment through the use of other rich media technologies such as podcasting? Or integrating more audio and video into Blackboard courses? What plans are there to use video options in Illuminate? What plans are there to help faculty design these media-rich courses to meet the course and degree objectives? Uh, there are webcasts part of the colloquia. Why can't there be webcasts as part of the courses? Well, I think you have a point. Um, and indeed, um, at a two-day faculty institute we had with our full and part-time faculty in May, and more than 80 of our faculty attended, this is one of the um, areas um, that we raised with them because it was one of the concerns that was expressed last spring. And that's the amount of information that's provided by a faculty member through their um, content or learning uh, management system. And what we think is that indeed faculty should be um, teaching and providing you with information. They should provide lectures and perhaps podcasts and webcasts. In fact, several of the faculty do. But it's also an awful lot of additional work. Uh, and we certainly can't mandate it because every faculty member approaches their work in a different way. Again, I wouldn't make the assumption that's different in an online environment because uh, like you, I've taken a lot of graduate courses and I find that the quality of instruction from faculty member to faculty member face to face is very different as well in terms of the degree of interaction, the media resources that are provided, and so on. Also, not all faculty uh, believe in it. They have a different approach, and I suppose if there's some variety and this isn't happening in all of your courses, then I'd have to know, um, in fact, what is actually uh, going on in the degree of engagement that the faculty member um, exhibits. Not all faculty want to use Illuminate as often as well. It's interesting that you should mention that it typically is a once or twice during the term. There are actually faculty who have required Illuminate sessions every week, and they're probably one of the um, types of delivery that I get the most complaints about. Uh, people want face-to-face -face courses, um, and then when you provide opportunities like Illuminate, they're very grateful for it, and uh, when the faculty member moves to week-to-week -week, uh, class discussion times, uh, people start to push back and say, I didn't sign up for a distance learning program, only to be told I have to appear at a certain time every week. So I guess I'm saying, in essence, that we can't win. So what we're trying to do is provide you with some variety, and there's no question there should be a rich media learning environment uh, for you. We can use uh, video options in Illuminate already, and a few classes have used the webcam feature as well. But it does require incredible bandwidth which can be detrimental for some of our students, another consideration. Um, I'm not sure what else we can say. Um, I agree with you, but uh, the particular faculty member you may be referring to may not. I should tell you, when you ask about what plans we have, um, we have a, a technology team who's, uh, which is led by our associate director, Linda Main, that spent an awful lot of time in the last several months looking at a different learning management system that will actually make it far easier for us to incorporate Web 2.0 uh, features into the systems. We can actually bring Illuminate uh, 
clone-like features and others within into the learning management system into one integrated whole. And we're hoping to move forward with that and have it in place um, in 2009. We're obviously moving very slowly and carefully uh, because it's something where I know we would get a lot of pushback from students if it didn't work and work well uh, right from the get-go. Another question comes from Essie regarding um, Blackboard consistency. As I enter the home stretch of my program, my question has to do with how Blackboard is used by the teaching staff. Is there any intention to standardize the appearance and use? It would reduce some student confusion if there was always a section with the assignments listed with instructions, a section that includes the green sheet or syllabus, and a section that includes the course documents and reading assignments by week. Some instructors allow subscriptions to the Blackboard discussion so you can get an email when a new post is submitted. Others do not. At least the display should be consistent. It seems unprofessional of San Jose's list to not have a standard look when accessing the different courses in Blackboard. Perhaps this is a task that a student could do as part of LIBR 298 as a special studies project. They could work with the staff to develop the standard and then assist each instructor in applying it to their courses. We've actually had discussion around this a number of times and we've determined that we will likely move forward with a standard template. Um, we think it will make it easier for new instructors, but we certainly can't require it for every instructor. I know that a number of students don't accept this very well, but perhaps they don't work in unionized environments, which I do here at uh, San Jose. And there are only certain things that one can require of an instructor, um, and certainly uh, one of the places where we provide student feedback on the student opinions of teaching effectiveness, the SOATs, are critical because that's one place where uh, we do have some play at looking at some consistency and standardization. But the fact of the matter is that uh, while it m might make it easier for some faculty, we can't require it of all. And indeed, different classes handle material quite differently. In fact, uh, when this question came in in consultation with some of my colleagues, I know that some faculty um, will be teaching in an area uh, where they organize their materials quite differently than they do in another content area or another class. And there are some where they have weekly readings and some where they don't at all. So I guess we concluded that the issue isn't so much one of look, uh, but one of clarity. And we hope that uh, new evaluation guidelines, which I'll be commenting on in a minute, uh, that we developed and which will be used for peer reviews of uh, people teaching a distance learning environment will be helpful. I should say too, in um, adding on to this, we now require um, a faculty technology workshop about 20 hours before anyone teaches for us online. And if we develop a standardized look or a template, that will certainly be part of that new uh, faculty technology workshop. So I think you'll see some improvement and growth there. One area where there was no question tonight, where I do get a lot of comments, is around the whole area of working in groups and working in teams. Uh, we did put that on the faculty agenda for our retreat at the end of November, our two-day retreat, and we had quite a good discussion about how we could improve um, education and training for students in working in teams because that's the way of the 
uh, work environment today and how we could make it more successful for all involved. We know that some students are incredibly frustrated by working in teams and we think there are some reasons for that. The one we don't have much sympathy for is the uh, notion of simply preferring to work on one's own. Um, there's certainly ample opportunity for that in our program, but we also know that we have to provide structured opportunities for working in groups and teams, so there's an opportunity to learn how to do it well before you go into the workplace. There's a fair body of research around successfully working uh, in teams in terms of making sure there's a group goal but individual accountability, that there are ground rules at the outset, that there are consequences, that there's peer review that's provided to the instructor and so on. Some of that was covered in a colloquium that I did earlier in the year. It's still available on our site. Some of it was covered by some work that another instructor did, Enid Irwin, which is also available on our website. It's something that we treat very seriously and we're looking to incorporate a structured approach to working in teams in one of the beginning required courses and then structured opportunities in some of the other required courses so that by the time you hit an elective, it isn't feeling like you've just been thrown into the deep end to the pool and you either sink or swim. So although that didn't come in a question, it is something that I'm aware of as an issue with students and that we're giving considerable attention to. A couple of other areas in the program and curriculum area before I move on to another section. Our advisory council uh, meets once a year for a day. It's an international advisory council um, and they have um, of all the ideas that we've presented to them as to where we might go in the future, they have focused on three. Uh, two I'd like to comment on now, one um, in a few minutes in another section. They've strongly urged us, urged us to start a leadership stream in our program that actually would start before someone takes their first course. So we could spend some time on how you learn more about yourself, how you plan your courses, how you plan your career before you ever start your program here at SLIS and then other opportunities throughout the program. We're looking at that, we're looking at some structured approaches that some associations use, and we hope to have something in place in the next year for students who are interested in following that stream. The other area um, that we've been investigating with strong support from our advisory council is some way of offering a doctoral program um, connected with the school. Uh, the California State Universities are not allowed to offer doctoral work under the ma master plan that was approved by the state government 40 years ago. Um, they can develop a partnership with another organization, which has proven to be very difficult by some of the experiences that other units have had on campus. We've been uh, talking with two universities, one in the United States, uh, one abroad, about offering a San Jose cohort whereby all the residency would be done in San Jose. They'd be short residencies of several weeks rather than several months with the rest of the program offered online, all the advising done in San Jose, and essentially the program delivered in San Jose and online without somebody having to go uh, several thousand miles away to take um, a program. You may wonder why we have some interest in this. We know from the feedback from our alumni at trade shows, at exhibits, at receptions, at meetings, that this is the one area where we keep getting asked why we haven't started a doctoral program. We've had a number of discussions with two universities. Um, the advisory council and the faculty are tending to support one over the other. Uh, we've got another conference call set up for next week. We're having a face-to-face -face meeting the first week of January, and we hope to have an announcement in the spring about this. Uh, you may be pleased to know, I hope that a sticking point is that we're holding out for um, 
residence fees for our students. In other words, we expect our students in the San Jose cohort to pay the same fees as somebody would be if they were resident uh, in the home state or home country, and we're making some progress in that area. So that's a very exciting development, and we hope to have more to tell you in the spring about that. Moving to the school environment and resources, you know that we've um, invested heavily in Illuminate, um, in Plone for the electronic portfolio, um, with uh, grants that we've received from foundations and elsewhere, we've built a presence in Second Life. I was uh, quite amused when I heard a student criticism that we were spending millions of dollars in Second Life. Uh, it must have been in uh, Second Life dollars because it certainly isn't in uh, real dollars. It's thousands of dollars and most of it has come through grants that we've, been apply we've applied for and been very successful with. Um, so we're moving into that environment and we're really focusing on the customer, what they're looking for, what they need, and how our students need to be expert in those areas, whether they have a particular interest in them personally or not. Um, our colloquia series is rich, uh, they're webcast, I hope you've been participating and uh, viewing those. Uh, we've um, seen a number of um, collaborations among our student associations around programs. Uh, we're giving student awards to graduates for the first time. As you know, we have our first endowments and scholarships in that area. And I hope you've taken advantage of the partnership that we formed with our Career Center. A number of their programs are being offered through webcasts and other delivery methods. And they do provide review of resumes, cover letters, and so on for you. Please do take advantage of it. It's a partnership we have with them, uh, so it's available for you. And we're now looking at a partnership with our Writing Center to provide support for those of you who need assistance in that area as well. Uh, this year, for the first time, we also provided an opportunity for our Spectrum Scholars. Those are people who have been recognized by the American Library Association as bringing something powerful and important to our profession, um, representing visible minorities, and we provided student assistantships to those who were interested. I did have a question uh, from Francine about uh, the school environment and resources. I would love to have contact with other library school students in my local area. Uh, I live in Illinois. I thought that there was going to be a means of doing this, but so far I haven't found it. This is my first year in the program, and I find myself so jealous of on-campus students who can arrange library tours and get-togethers. If I knew who was in special session from my area, perhaps I could do the same. I have tried posting on the listservs for the Yahoo student group, and this was not fruitful. Well, let me say that we're aware of this issue, um, especially as we've expanded dramatically outside of the state of California. We now have students in more than 40 states and 12 different countries. Um, we're bringing up a social networking platform for SLIS students, faculty, alumni, and interested professionals and guests. It's taken us much longer than we anticipated due to the need to pass the California State University's very strict uh, 508 accessibility requirements. We hope to launch it at the beginning of the spring semester, and we'll work very hard to make this a place where you can make connections. It'll be called SLIS Life, and it'll be modeled on other social, net social networking systems you may be familiar with, like MySpace and Facebook and so on. And you will be able to find students in your area. You will be able to search geographically by course and be able to make connections, and we think it'll be very useful. 
We're also looking for ways to integrate alumni, uh, local professionals, guests um, into Slice Life so that it will create a very strong virtual environment that will be very useful to those of you who don't live near um, the campus. In terms of faculty development, um, in the last two years we've added seven new full-time faculty and five new staff to support students. Um, our full-time faculty and staff now come to 37. Um, we have 63 full-time equivalent faculty of staff. We had a two-day faculty institute, which I mentioned, where we looked at curriculum coordination, pedagogy, use of technology, and we looked at standards for online teaching. We had a draft there that was discussed in small groups with feedback to Debbie Hansen, Debbie Fairs, Linda Main, and others. Uh, they took the, that draft and uh, uh, improved on it, and uh, a couple of weeks ago it was approved at our faculty retreat for use by um, faculty to review each other and their teaching. Uh, you may say, well, what good is it for faculty to review each other? Well, we rely quite heavily on student evaluations, but we also know that faculty have an idea of what the potential is in the background to designing courses and mounting them in an online uh, learning environment, and we're also making sure that the necessary content knowledge is there uh, for students as well. So it will be another piece in the way that we assess ourselves and we assess each other. It's a required course for all new faculty teaching and distance learning. And you may also be interested to know that we're introducing post-tenure reviews of faculty beginning in the spring. So every faculty member who has tenure will also be going through a process of review of teaching, of research, and of service. I mentioned that a number of opportunities were given to our advisory council to advise us on priorities. And uh, two, I mentioned earlier, um, the Leadership Institute being one and the Gateway PhD program being another. They were also very supportive and keen on a center for research, as was the external review panel from the Committee on Accreditation. We've had a proposal now approved by our faculty, they've discussed it over several months, a center for research, innovation and education in library and information science. Uh, it'll be an applied research center uh, that will incorporate bridges to professional practice, including research, um, internships, continuing education. We're going to roll our research projects into that area. We've engaged a grant writer to help faculty develop grants and proposals. You may think, well, what does this have to do with me, other than making a big difference in terms of the contributions the school can make to the professional community. It does help to build a research climate in the school, a climate of inquiry, and a place where students can actually engage with faculty as paid research assistants or as volunteers to investigate critical issues in our field. We think it'll make a very strong contribution and we think it's very important for a graduate school like ours and we're pleased that it's receiving such strong um, support from our professional community, from our alumni, our advisory council, and we hope that it will receive strong support from the university as well. Moving to student admissions and advising, we reviewed our whole admissions policy and procedures and we streamlined the whole thing. We raised our admission standards without exception to 3.0 GPA as a minimum for the last two years of your education. We've increased the number of student assistantships. Last year we started exit surveys of graduating students, which we now do each term, uh, fall and spring when students finish, and we identify the issues that come from you and we put them on the agenda and have a committee investigate them and look to improve them. 
We know that we've made great strides in advising. We know that we have some ways yet to go, but we certainly have a much higher satisfaction level than we had uh, two years ago. There will be more standardization in advising so that you aren't dealing with individual faculty members to handle forms, uh, to sign forms for you. We're looking to bring that all into the central office so you've got one person that you can deal with and there'll be more information coming about that. We've collaborated with two agencies in the state uh, to receive a million dollar grants to attract uh, visible minorities and particularly Hispanic students uh, to the school. Um, we've looked at an ethno-LIS program as a um, specialization uh, for those who want to specialize in serving uh, underserved populations in our communities. And I think you'd be interested to know that in the last few years, we've driven the average class size down from 23 to 18. That's quite a substantial achievement. Um, it's interesting that in most schools on the continent, the classes tend to be 50 to 75. We have a class size maximum of 25, and our average is actually 18. The student-faculty ratio has been reduced from 17 to 12. The number of different courses that we offer has been increased from 24 to 39, uh, quite a substantial increase in the options that are available to you. Um, and we know, nevertheless, that we still have problems. And here's a question from Jessica. Thank you for providing this forum for students. I never got an answer to my question from the last forum about instructors combining two class sections on Blackboard. Trust me, if you asked the question and I got it, I answered it because I don't avoid them. Whether it was dealt with or not is another matter, but it was answered. Combining two class sections on Blackboard effectively doubling the class size. I understand that there is a limit to the number of students in a section. However, this wonderfully helpful limitation is obliterated when an instructor combines the sections on Blackboard. What if that were done in an in-person class? If it's not allowed on campus, it should be not allowed in special session. How can we be expected to follow a weekly discussion with 200 or more posts? It's just out of control when an instructor does this. Well, again, I believe that I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but let me say again, it's not a comparison of regular session and special session. We have regular session students who take online instruction. Because they're in regular session does not mean they're taking all their courses uh, physically on campus. Um, I do know that this situation was occurring a year ago. Um, I don't recall whether you asked the question or whether you sent me an email. I know it was occurring a year ago. Um, I tracked down where it was happening. I spoke to the faculty member uh, concerned and I was told it wouldn't happen again. Um, we checked that again and we're assured that it wasn't happening. So if this is happening this term, um, I would suggest that you send me an email message tomorrow so that I can follow up on it specifically. Uh, we're not establishing class size limits of 25, only so people can make classes of 50 or 100 uh, through Blackboard discussion groups. We expect you to get individual attention with small classes. We organize in that way, and that's our commitment to you. And if this is happening, let's not play games and make generalities. Let me know specifically where it's happening so that I can follow up on it, and I will do that, and I will get back to you about that. We're very committed to equality uh, in this school. Uh, we're very committed to continual improvement. The faculty and I believe in the old cliche that you don't have to be sick uh, to get better. We think this is a great program. Uh, I went to a session a few months ago when some students accused me of being a cheerleader for the school. Now, I make no, absolutely no 
um, evasive uh, comment about that. I am a cheerleader for this school. Uh, that's my job. Uh, my job is to make sure that people think this is a great school. Frankly, they're not going to hire you otherwise. Uh, so I think this is a great school. We have a great faculty. We have great students. We have great alumni. And we celebrated them a couple of weeks ago. Can we improve? Of course we can improve. You can always improve. And so we're looking for ways to improve while recognizing that it's a wonderful program that we have here. Unfortunately, the ways of improving typically involve not only attention to quality and attention to uh, clear criteria for assessment, but in many cases they also involve uh, financial resources. Uh, we did undergo a fee increase two years ago, which brought us in line with um, our expenditures, which were quite minimal at the time, and also some possibilities for improvements. I think you've seen those improvements. You've seen those improvements in infrastructure. You've seen them in Illuminate. You've seen them in Plone. You've seen them in uh, round-the-clock support for technology. You've seen them in the technology workshop that we offer. You've seen them in a number of areas where we've improved the program. We brought in full-time people to coordinate the internship, uh, to coordinate the culminating experience so you have a better experience uh, here. Uh, regrettably, we're going to need to increase fees in special session again for reasons that really are truly um, beyond our control. I gave a commitment two years ago that I would do everything possible to ensure that there wouldn't be a fee increase while you were in, enrolled uh, in our program if you were enrolled at that time. Uh, we've done an analysis and we know that the vast majority of students who are enrolled at that time will have completed their program by next summer, 2008, and therefore this fee increase will not take place until fall 2008. We considered introducing it in spring 2008 eight for new students, but we thought it would be too confusing and we should just delay and introduce it in fall 2008 for um, all students um, in our program. Uh, why am I telling you this now? Because one of the complaints the last time was that if students had known in plenty of time, they might have arranged to take more courses uh, earlier on so they could finish before the fee increase came into practice. So this will give you an opportunity to uh, review what you intend to take in the spring and to review what you tend to take, intend to take in the summer before the increase in the fall. Why are we doing this? Well, our faculty have had a pay increase for the first time in years. Do they deserve a pay increase? They absolutely do haven't had a pay increase in some years. Uh, there was hard negotiating between the uh, faculty union and the um, CSU. An agreement was reached that was uh, close to 5%, then close to 4%, then close to 5% over two years. Uh, count compounded, obviously, 4.7, 3.7, 4.7. Uh, the university is providing this with no money uh, to cover those faculty increases. We have to cover them all internally. Similarly, our staff, I received a salary increase as well. Some of these increases were in fact retroactive, which we have to find uh, funding for. In addition to that, for our special session students, 24% of our revenue is taken right off the top for overhead. Um, I may have some questions about whether where that overhead um, is allocated, but the fact of the matter is we are part of this institution. They do provide services for us, uh, for admissions, uh, for support, for um, assignment and appointment of faculty and staff, and we need to cover that. Well, that's 24 percent. 
Um, our new arrangements within the College of Applied Sciences and Arts, uh, the Dean's Office has determined that special session causes them undue hardship and additional work, and they're adding an additional 4% surcharge uh, to uh, these fees. That means that um, the revenue coming into our school to support our infrastructure is dramatically reduced, and we would have to cut back on our services if we weren't able to raise our fees. Probably the most significant uh, cost area for us is um, accessibility and compliance with uh, 508. Uh, we have no funding whatsoever from the CSU system, although this is a mandate. So the captioning that we provide, the opportunities for deaf students to participate in Illuminate sessions, all very important and all legally required. We receive no additional funding for that, and that is something that's been mandated only in the last um, short while. Our site licenses have increased, and we're also looking at a new content management system that will lead to a much better experience for students, but is also more expensive. So for fall um, 2008, uh, special session fees will increase. Uh, they will increase approximately 25%. Um, I can hear you howling right now. Uh, they will increase approximately 25%. I can tell you that um, you have choices. We think this is a high quality program and we would like you to stay here. There's no question about that, but you have choices. But I have to tell you that of the 60 accredited programs in North America, only 12 provide their program um, as an option uh, fully online. We're one of those. We started to do that in 2006, not very long ago, uh, to make it accessible to people um, throughout the state um, and beyond. Of those 12 programs, our fees rank 12 out of 12. You can check it out yourself. We've done it several times. We rank 12 out of 12. We're the least expensive. With these increases, and assuming that none of the other programs increase their fees, which is not likely, assuming they all remain constant at the spring 2007 rates, we would still only rank ninth out of 12 in our fees. In other words, out of 12 programs, there are eight, even with this increase, that are more expensive than we are. And we don't provide, believe that they provide nearly as outstanding a program as we do or the degree of support um, that our students receive. Why do I believe that? Well, we have five deans, former deans of um, LIS programs in North America who teach for us. We have a number of faculty at other accredited programs who teach for us part-time because of our faculty technology workshop and the support that we provide for people to learn how to deliver programs effectively in a long online environment. They, like the Committee on Accreditation, tell us that we have very high standards for teaching and learning in a distance education. So, well, we're still among one of the lowest on the continent, uh, we're very cognizant of the demands that our students face and we try to balance that with things like uh, fee increases, but they will be going up um, um, in the fall of 2008 and we hope that providing you with this much advance notice, um, having had these fees approved uh, with student input, that you will be able to make uh, accommodations accordingly. Well, let me tell you some of the things that we're doing to try and accommodate this. The first is that we're going to list on our website the specific zip codes that regular session applies to. We've done an analysis of the state, where our students are located um, geographically by numbers. And we have been able to, um, by allocating resources very judiciously and carefully, 
being able to draw a line across the state where we can say these zip codes are regular session, the rest are special session. And we've been able to push that boundary down to Fresno and over to the Nevada um, border to recruit students aggressively from out of state since the more students we bring in from out of state, the more students within California that we can put into regular session. And regular session, of course, is for California students only um, because it brings state aid with them. So we're very uh, concerned about managing our enrollment, uh, not growing too large that we don't have high quality, but making sure that we're growing outside the state as well as inside the state so we can extend our regular session um, boundaries. We know that from recent recruitment tours that I've been on uh, for interested students in different cities, we've been getting 50 to 100 students out in cities across the country and Canada who are interested in our program. And we think this is a model for us that will enable us to drive down the costs for a high quality LIS program uh, for California students over the next three to five years. A question from Amy. I understand it is no longer possible to switch from regular session to special session. Is this accurate? Could you please explain the situation? Thank you. Regrettably, that is true. We had worked out a number of accommodations within the university. The union university is becoming much more prescriptive about the line between regular session and special session. And it's only now possible to move from regular session to special session or the reverse if you've actually physically moved. In other words, into or out of the Bay Area or outside of that area if it's within the zip codes that we've established and proof of address will be required. This is university policy. We're part of the university. Um, we would like to see more flexibility, but that is just not going to be possible um, in the near future, uh, regrettably. So I hope you will agree with me that since the spring there have been a large number of improvements in the program. We've built infrastructure, we've added full-time faculty and staff, we've built in quality controls for online learning. We're committed to a high quality teaching and learning environment. We're looking to improve our research productivity and addressing critical research problems and questions of our field. We also are developing a balanced scorecard, which will be known to those of you who have studied evaluation. Um, in a balanced scorecard, we try to measure our impact and our value. We've identified our major stakeholder groups. Those are obviously our students, alumni and employers, uh, the university, and our accrediting body. And we've determined what is important to each of those groups, uh, what the measures are, who we might benchmark ourselves against, both academic units within the university and other universities across the continent, and making sure that we're continuing to improve to, follow, to provide the best quality of education that we can uh, for our students and uh, opportunities for you once you uh, graduate uh, from our program. Thank you very much for listening this evening, and I'll ask if there are any uh, specific questions. No, there are just the 12 questions that I addressed uh, as part of the uh, presentation. If there are still no questions, I certainly invite you to get in touch with me. You have my email address, you have my telephone number, and I will be in my office tomorrow and Thursday to hear from you if you have any specific questions.